Hi, I'm Cindy Zhang, and this is Tell Me Muse, a podcast where I interview recent McGill graduates to figure out what exactly is classics. Today, I'm sitting down with Avery Workington, who's just finishing up her MPhil degree all the way across the ocean at Oxford University. We're talking about classical archaeology, but this time in the context of North Africa, in a little urban site called Nakha, which is in modern-day Sudan. And just as a side note, I did not know how to pronounce Nakha, so you will be hearing me at the beginning of the interview referring to it as Naka. This is incorrect. Her research focuses on two archaeological structures that remain in Nakha. One is a kiosk and the other is a lion temple. And you can tell from the remains that there is a significant amount of cultural mixing of Greco-Roman architectural elements blended with more local North African styles. So given that we don't typically talk a lot about North Africa, about Egypt and her neighbors, outside of an Egyptology department, which is rare, as Avery will show us, this is a pretty good appetizer for those of you who might be interested in Egypt and in exploring more of the North African context. So without further ado, please let me introduce Avery Workington. Thank you so much for coming on. And this is really, really exciting because I have never talked to anybody about anything in Egypt or even in Africa before. So let's just jump right into it. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself to begin with, where you're from, maybe some of your hobbies, anything like that? Yeah, for sure. I'm Avery. I am a McGill Classics undergrad graduate. I'm from Vancouver originally in Canada, then spent four years in Montreal and have since moved to the UK to Oxford to do my master's of philosophy. So master's program, a two-year program in classical archaeology. And I am really interested in primarily Roman archaeology, but sort of peripherally, maybe on the borders of, of what is considered the Roman Empire. Along that vein, I really, really enjoy traveling. I feel like, uh, similar to most ancient historians or classicists, trying to learn too many languages um, at once. I'm a long-distance runner and also true BC gal. I love hiking and spending time outside. Probably my favorite hobbies. So just turning to your background as an undergrad studying classics at McGill, take us through the journey. How did you get to McGill and into the classics program? Was this something that you knew right away? Absolutely not. I was completely convinced that I was going to be a political science and international development major. And then I took an intro to political theory class and every single person in the 600 person lecture put up their hand saying they wanted to go to law school and work for the UN. And I went, um, maybe I don't want this so much. And at the same time, I was taking a couple courses. I took an ancient history course and a classics course on Greek mythology and basically intro to the ancient Mediterranean. And it was really, you know, as cliche as it is, it was really the professors and the fact that I was in smaller classes with professors that just seemed a hell of a lot more interesting and engaged than my other first year classes that sort of made me stick around. And after first year, it was sort of the question of what am I going to do? And I was like, oh, well, I'll be a history major. And then I sort of tentatively 
meandered my way to office hours to one of the professors that was the head of the department at the time at McGill and was like, what about this Latin thing? I'd never studied Latin or done classics at all. I went to a public school in high school and then started intro Latin in second year and all of a sudden found myself as an honors classics major, still with history. But that was my weird meandering way into classics uh, and within the realm of classics, definitely found my niche in archaeology. Archaeology I had always been interested in, but much more as like a, I could never do that for real type dream rather than something academic. But McGill and Professor Totten, uh, particularly at McGill, was super encouraging in, in sort of fostering that flame a little bit. You touched on something that's quite important, I think, for a lot of classic students, especially in the McGill program. And we've sort of touched upon this theme in previous podcasts, but never explicitly said it, which is that the small classes really do make a difference. And also the community that you find, you are also on the Classic Students Association. Mm -hmm. So of course, in the past, we've had people also uh, within that community talk about just sort of the lively atmosphere you get, you know, you walk into class and you see people you've seen on the CSA before, and you're all in the same language classes together, you really do build up that kind of community, which I think is very important for fostering like education in general. So I'm glad that you brought that up. And just extending the timeline now to when you're applying to universities uh, for grad school, and you're now at Oxford in archaeology. So what was that process like? Yeah, I wanted to be able to specialize in archaeology exclusively and wanted to, I thought, like, probably get out of Canada. And the sort of only program that was really, really interesting to me in classical archaeology was at UBC in Vancouver. I think they have the best classical archaeology. And it's also an integrated department with Egyptology and Near Eastern Studies in Canada, which is super unique. However, being from the Vancouver area, I was a bit desperate to get further away rather than closer. And so the history of the departments in the UK just just have an absolutely astounding sort of faculty and repertoire and history of classical archaeology in a way that just obviously doesn't exist in Canada to the same extent. And so applied to a handful of schools there and ended up getting into Oxford and chose Oxford over Cambridge, basically because Oxford has a classical archaeology department. It's separate from classics and it's separate from more traditional archaeology. It's integrated into both faculties, but you have a really distinct cohort that are just doing classical archaeology. So speaking about institutions, is like the area of Egyptology and architecture in ancient Egypt categorized within the classical archaeology department? Or how does that sort of fit in? Because ancient Egypt is not normally associated with like what you traditionally think of as the classics, as in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, which have their own subset of archaeological finds. So how does that all fit in at Oxford? And how do you feel about how Egypt and African sites fit into like the ancient Mediterranean world? I think this is one of the most interesting and also sort of most frustrating parts about trying to do cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary research in an ancient context is the fact of, of sort of faculty divisions and, and historical divisions in terms of scholarship and the development of scholarship. So Egyptology at Oxford is not housed at all connected with classics. It's under uh, its own faculty called Oriental Studies or the Oriental Institute, which, you know, we're not gonna unpack the problems there even starting with the name, but you get the sense of the sort of history of, of scholarship and of, of the academy that has defined how these things are categorized. So Egyptology is quite separate in a sort of organizational function, which is very similar in most departments in North America as well. It's very rare to find um, Egyptology very integrated 
with classics, for example, you know, which is a struggle for people who are interested in a variety of periods and a variety of sort of geographic locations in the ancient world, especially in an ancient world that was incredibly connected, that didn't see the same boundaries like that the disciplines now have sort of self-imposed. Um, and it's very strange as someone who's also done research in North Africa, which is incredibly integrated in classics a lot of the time because the Roman Empire, you know, stretched to modern day um, Libya and Tunisia and the, the North African coast in a particular way. But the just biases and oftentimes just, you know, racist implications of wanting to sort of separate Egypt as, as a special case study has meant that it's not very integrated and has, uh, has sort of, you have to push definitely a bit to get access and sort of to get the research resources for your research that you want, even in a place at Oxford that would seem to sort of have all, all the answers you might need. Now let's turn to your paper and really talk about uh, Naka, talk about Nubia, and talk about these two different architectural remains that you're analyzing. So just to situate us, you're talking about this place called Nubia, which is in Africa. I, I don't know if you would classify it as even North Africa. Yeah, ish. <laughs> to be honest, not a place I've heard of before I read your paper. It sounds super fascinating, though. Can you give us a rundown of what it is, both geographically and like within the time period that you're studying, like what was happening there? Yeah, absolutely. Nubia was a completely new thing for me as well. And that's what was so fascinating. It was like there's something else beyond even Egypt. So Nubia is sort of a broader term that refers to sort of the geographic region that is located along the Nile, which is south of what most people would consider Egypt in a modern sense and sort of the height of the ancient Egyptian empire. And it's located primarily in modern day Sudan, this area that we call Nubia. And that's a term that's much more broad because in this region of Nubia, there are sort of different empires that exist at different periods uh, in the ancient world. One of them being the kingdom of Meroe, which is the period that's contemporary with the sort of Ptolemaic and then Roman period. So that's that sort of distinction. And Nubian sort of culture and civilization dates back very similarly, like the Egyptian civilization from around 2500 BC, and then ends around 400 CE, similarly, sort of with the fall of the Roman Empire as it's declining. Uh, we see Meroe at the time also declining. But before Meroe, you had a kingdom called Kush, which people might have heard of called the Kingdom of Kush. And that is the kingdom that during most prominently or sort of maybe most known in around the 8th century BC, it actually is able to conquer Egypt. So there's this ongoing tension over thousands of years between these two sort of battling powers in the region around the Nile. And in the 8th century, it's sort of only period where Nubia, or at that time, the kingdom of Kush is able to actually rule and put their own rulers on the Egyptian throne. And you get really interesting art from the period and sort of political and religious developments because of that. So that is the sort of geographic and time period that we're looking at. But inevitably, just like Egypt, it is incredibly well connected. You have the Red Sea to the east on one side, which is a conduit all the way out into the Indian Ocean. And you have the Nile that connects all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. And then if you were to continue south, you get into what is also modern day Ethiopia. And so Nubia and, and Meroe, as I talk about in my paper, is you know a real nexus of connection and trade and communication and sort of butts up against a lot of other powers in really interesting ways. 
way, even though perhaps the sort of the archaeological remains that we see today are very stark desert landscapes. Definitely equally as interesting as, as Egypt, I think, has been my conclusion in studying it, of course. And it's in a very interesting location, too, because it is underneath Egypt. And the time period that you're studying is also bridges the Alexandrian period. So you have Alexandria, which is in North Egypt, which is a prospering cosmopolitan city with all of this, this Greek literature flourishing there. Do you think the influences that Nubia received, were they directly from Greece and Rome through these trade routes? Or was it more so transported through like an Alexandrian context through Egypt? Egypt and then reaching Nubia that way? I think everything sort of has an Egyptian filter on it, inevitably. I think we have to think primarily of the sort of history of, of, of sort of roots and sort of institutions and peoples and connections that existed long before the Greeks and Romans and think about the ways that I have to remind myself you know, how old Egypt was to the Romans and Greeks at the time, too, and the way that, you know, trade was conducted between Nubia and Egypt for, you know, thousands of years or, you know, 1500 years before there's there any Greek or Hellenistic or Roman influence. And so even as the Ptolemies and the Romans in particular take control of Egypt, you know, it's to their benefit as well to leave a lot of those institutions and those trade routes and sort of those connections intact. And so, well, we clearly see direct connections and sort of there's literary examples mentioning Nubia and, and sort of there's political conflict and then resolution that happens between, for example, Roman generals and, and Nubian rulers or Meroitic rulers at the time. You know, they're passing through and they, they're traveling through and they're coming through Egypt. And even if Nubian peoples were dealing with, quote unquote, Romans, capital R, maybe from Italy itself, I think most of that sort of influence gets this really interesting filter through cosmopolitan centers in Egypt and then all the way down, which speaks again to that really, really interconnected sort of character that defines this period in Egypt as well, like the Ptolemaic period has incredible examples of this sort of hybridity and mixing of so many different sort of religions and backgrounds and cultures. And for like the demographics of Nubia, was this mainly indigenous African populations or were you also getting like, I don't know if the Romans ever colonized this area, but were you also getting like immigrants and an influx of people from the surrounding Mediterranean world moving into Nubia? Like, what did that look like? That's a really good question. We don't have complete answers because it would just take a lot more excavation to know more extensively the sort of demographic questions, but we can answer it to, to some extent. For example, Egyptian art we know as depicts Nubians primarily with black skin. That's how we know when Nubians are, are depicted in war contexts in Egyptian art, for example, and when Kushite rulers are ruling Egypt, they're 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 black pharaohs. And so that is real a really interesting ethnic marker for sure. And we also get examples though of like literary references like we have literary references that talk about um, people moving through Nubia, especially coming from the Red Sea area. So the Periplus of the Erythraean Sea is this sort of travel treaties written about sailing itineraries, basically how to get from one place to the next. And it talks about Nubia and, and the way that sailors can access Nubia from the Red Sea and travel through there and the trade routes. Sailors, for example, oftentimes spent half a year in particular places before moving onwards. And so we can tell from political contexts and as well as sort of trade and economic ones that there was definitely an influx, particularly, I would assume, during the Ptolemaic and Roman periods 
of people moving through and inevitably settling in urban centers throughout Meroe, throughout Nubia, which is also probably why we get such an interesting mix of, of architecture and art that appears. Yeah, this is really cool. So now let's talk about Naka, which is this one particular city in the, the Nubian area. Mm-hmm. So what is Naka? We talked a little bit about demographics, so I guess we can imagine different kinds of people coming in through the area. But like, what can we tell about the indigenous Naka culture and what was the significance of Naka in Nubia? Yeah, so the site that I looked at primarily, and it's also the result of, of publication bias, and so Naka has been excavated pretty extensively compared to other sites. It's a really, really interesting urban center in Nubia from the ancient kingdom of Meroe. It's located in modern-day Sudan. It's along the Nile, and it is one of the largest seemingly sites from Nubia and was probably a very important ancient city for the kingdom. It has really noticeable religious architecture, which would have taken a lot of investment and construction. And it is very close to the other sort of large urban centers. The capital of the kingdom of Meroe was called Meroe, the city. And so that, and then also a town called uh, Musawaret S. Sufra, which is sort of the three large urban centers that have been excavated. And it was excavated first in the 1800s and then has sort of has, has had different periods of excavation, obviously made difficult by modern political circumstances in the region. But its religious structures have been excavated the most extensively. And there seems to be sort of a separation between that and what where the urban population probably lived, which shows pretty extensive housing complexes and probably, you know, meant a pretty complex and, and sort of developed yeah, urban center in Meroe. And so this entire kingdom of Meroe is united, right? There's one royal family, and then you have Naka, which is just like a little urban center with two unique structures that we're going to move on to talk about. But the idea is that they had local elites who were still subservient to the Meroe royalty. Yeah, basically. We don't know a lot about the sort of political structure of, of Meroe or how exactly like local administration works. There is there is a language, there is the Meroitic script, which would, which we don't have enough material to have it sort of fully deciphered. But we can tell from inscriptions, and there's some bilingual inscriptions which are very cool, and then by sort of the, the, the way that Nubias talked about in a Roman context, that there seems to be a similar sort of local elite governance going on to some extent. And you know, there has to be people with money enough to build the structures that we see, the most famous structures being the sort of really steep pyramids. I think if people know anything about Nubia, it's the really distinct pyramids that show up. And so really interesting burial and religious architecture that um, would have taken a lot of money and time and sort of organization in terms of construction and, and, and fundraising and things like that. And we're quite lucky because we have preserved for us from the first century CE these two structures that you're talking about. One is a kiosk. It's a Roman kiosk. And then the other one is a lion temple. So in your paper, you stated that they're built right next to each other. And some continuity between the patterns and the decorations tells us that they were probably built around the same time, perhaps even by the same patron. So let's just break that down a little bit and analyze these two structures independently first, and then we can sort of talk about the conclusions you draw from a compare and contrast between like the architectural styles. 
So first off, the kiosk. What is a kiosk? I have to admit, when I first read it, in my mind was like a marketplace kiosk. I was like, <laughs> it's like a fruit stand, <laughs> some mm-hmm. relic of a of a I don't know Egyptian Nubian fruit stand, but it's not. So it's actually quite significant. And I haven't taken a lot of archaeology before, but even with the classes that I have, we haven't talked too much about anything like this. So can you break it down for us? What is a kiosk? What was this kiosk like? Who was it for, like for commoners or for elites? And just general information about it. Yeah, so a kiosk is a really strange structure. And so even in a traditional, let's say, Roman architecture class, you probably weren't going to ever also come across it. It's seemingly this very particular, almost Roman Egyptian structure. It's it's a small open structure, so it's not completely enclosed, usually supported with columns. And its purpose is usually that of a temple or a pavilion. It has associations with particular deities and oftentimes sort of like regenerative or or even it has been suggested sort of like childbirth and sort of healing qualities as well. We have other examples of kiosks from Egyptian contexts. So we have one called Trajan's Kiosks that's located in southern Egypt. It's this unfinished monument that looks really similar to the one in Naka. Called Trajan's Kiosk, some of the reliefs look like Trajan. It's not like there's a big plaque, we don't totally know. And there's another one called the Kiosk of Kirtasi, which is also located in Egypt. And so it's this really visually striking structure where you have these columns that are usually sort of open between the columns supporting a roof. And the uh, kiosk at Nikah, we don't really know its exact function. We don't have any really, we don't have enough of a sample that gives us a particular answer where like every kiosk was definitely used for this. It seems that it was religiously affiliated because it's located in the part of Naka where these other very obvious religious structures are. So again, probably connected to that. And it's just been a very large point of debate in terms of its function. It's been suggested that it was sort of a, a not really a site of pilgrimage, but was part of a sort of processual sort of way between these different temples in Naka. It has been suggested that it was sort of more open place of offering. There seems to be not in it, but near it, an altar of some sort, or or at least a block of stone that likely was used for some sort of offering purposes. So it's a religious structure in some ways. And of course, that's also a very vague archaeologist's answer. If you're not quite sure, it's probably religion. But it it is really interesting also because it doesn't seem like it was a very exclusionary structure, uh, nor sort of Nubian religion as a whole. It wasn't like these places were blocked off and no one could go into them unless you were some sort of pie priest or something like that. The layout of urban centers seems to really promote a pretty connected interface between domestic spaces and religious spaces and things like that. So, you know, could send a secondary literature review in terms of what people think exactly kiosks are for, but they seem to crop up in this very particular period, which helps us date it and is a religious structure in some ways, probably probably to do with the other deities that are being worshipped at, at other sites as well. When we call this a Roman kiosk, is that just like the style name that we have retrospectively cast onto this kind of structure or was it Roman in origin? 
No, you're exactly right. It's this retrospective term that has been coined for it because it looks slightly classical in its decoration. People, archaeologists in the 1800s stumbled across it, found it, documented it, and said, wow, we can't believe the Romans were here, and so called it the Roman kiosk, even in the same way that they call it Trajan's kiosk at the other site. So that's the name that has stuck. Some scholars push back against that now and just sort of call it the kiosk of Naka, which I think is a, a more appropriate name because as we'll probably get to, it's as much Roman as it is Egyptian. And so the naming and the scholarship, again, is just so tied to these really interesting colonial histories of archaeology that is a completely other tangent that I would love to hear someone else interviewed on in terms of studying the history of archaeology as a discipline, which affects so much of the scholarship that we do today. And in terms of the kiosk, or just the kiosk structure type in general, you mentioned two, so one, the one in Naka and then Trajan's kiosk. They're both in North Africa. Do we find them generally anywhere else, or does this seem to be a pretty Egyptian thing from the finds that we're able to gather? Yeah, it seems a pretty regional thing. It seems seems really localized. It seems to only crop up in sort of Egyptian and Nubian contexts al along the Nile in a very limited time frame. We don't have a lot of them. That's also why they're these weird sort of one-offs. And kiosks, the name is sometimes used for, for other structures as well in completely different ar archaeological contexts, whether that's from the Near East or like, you know, other examples of sort of semi-open religious structures. But the way that we see it at Meqah with these really distinct columns and sort of open windows or framing and things like that. Yeah, seems to be really reg regional. Neat. So we have something in classics called an ekphrasis, which is where you have written word competing with a work of art. And, you know, in the text, you're trying to outdo the physical artistic representation by being super descriptive, trying to paint a really vivid picture in the reader's mind about what this object would look like in real life. So I wanted to try like a modern ekphrasis with you in which you describe verbally what this structure looks like for us as if we were to have a photo of it or as if we were cast back in like the first century CE, this little Nubian person walking up <laughs> to the kiosk. What would we have seen as we go up to it, into it? and maybe some of the details that stand out to us. What was that like? Yeah, that's a great plan. Okay, so if you were to walk up to the, the Roman kiosk or the kiosk at Nika, you would see this large structure where you have freestanding canopies of columns that are connected by screen walls. It has four distinct sides and each of the corners, each of the corners are made up of these really interesting heart-shaped columns that separate each of the four facades. The north-south ends of the kiosks are shorter and the east-west fronts are a little bit longer, so you have a rectangular shape to the building. And each side consists of four pillars which the, with engaged half columns. An engaged half column means that it's not a full circle all the way around, that's freestanding, but they've taken big blocks of stone and have carved just the front half of a column out of the stone. The columns are all decorated with particular capitals. So capitals are the decoration on top of the columns. Um, they're mostly composite capitals with Kalathi leaves and acanthus leaves, which are very beautiful. You also have the sort of corner volutes, which are part of these same sort of composite capital types. The building itself has 
windows that characterize each side of the building. These windows are decorated in two different styles. You have rounded, much more classically influenced framing for the windows and one of the doorways as well. Each of the shorter ends has a doorway that you can look all the way through to the other end of the kiosk. And the other doorway and windows are characterized by a much more Egyptian style. So you have, instead of a rounded, you have a straight across top to the windows and to the doorways. The lintels above the doorways on the Egyptian style side are covered with a row of snakes and they have the sun, the winged sun that decorates the doorway as well, which is a very Egyptian symbol. And you have, for example, other traditional Egyptian patterns of, of vertical leaves, those sort of like rounded decorative patterns that decorate the top of the doorways in what are called the cornices. So on the whole, you have this really interesting structure with these half columns that make up the footprint of the kiosk, let's say. And you have windows on two of the longer sides, two doorways on either side with these alternating patterns of decoration between Roman rounded decorations and Egyptian visuals and decoration as well. And this is a crucial part of your analysis for this building. It's this blend of Greco-Roman architectural designs and styles with the Egyptian or more local Nubian art style. Which parts of these are specifically Greco-Roman and which parts of them are more Egyptian Nubian influenced? So the most obvious examples of what's going on here that seems very classical are the capital decorations on all the columns. The use of rounded columns with capital decoration has been extensively studied by archaeologists there, and there has been a really, really extensive categorization of like what exact capital decoration looks like. How many leaves are in the top of like are on a particular capital? How many scrolls do we see? How much detail do we see in vine leaves? Things like that. And so we can can see that these composite capitals, composite just meaning that they're a combination of particular styles to be combined into a sort of melange, if you will, appear very similarly in Alexandria. And so that is a very distinct sort of categorical example of what archaeologists saw and why they called it Roman. Really interestingly, the idea of like engaged half columns is also very interesting. You rarely see engaged columns in Egyptian contexts. They're mostly all, they're almost always actually freestanding full columns, usually actually for architectural support, rather than this more decorative way of carving half columns into stone that just sits there. And the, the sort of the rounded doorway and the rounded windows similarly are fairly classical in their styling. You have little mini engaged columns that support an arched window that has very similar parallels in other classical contexts. And then if you look at a photo of the kiosk, I think what will actually jump out to most people is how Egyptian so much of it looks with these sort of, it has an extended doorway with multiple different levels of decoration all above it, with these very distinct Egyptian motifs, like the, the snake lines, which are called yorii, and the winged sun motifs and things like that, which are just so obviously Egyptian, which is really interesting. However, there's also things like on the inside of the kiosk, there's two pairs of recumbent lions 
and so lying lines that are lying down, which also appear at Ptolemaic temples in Egypt. So you definitely have a mix of things going on here. Lions are also very common in a broader sense in, in Nubian religious contexts. So you get a seemingly unconcerned mix of decorative styles that have all been mixed together to create one particular building. Was this purely for aesthetic reasons, or do you think that there was an intentional juxtaposition between these two strong cultural influences? Is there anything in the remains that can tell us what we're specifically supposed to focus our gaze on? Are we supposed to see the superiority of one architectural style over the other? Or is this really just a comment about the cosmopolitan nature of this kiosk? I think the answer is probably a little bit of everything, sort of, you know, it draws your attention in a particular way because of its diversity. But I found it really interesting in analyzing it, uh, the fact that sort of whatever view you took or wherever you were sort of standing as a viewer, it was inevitable that you were going to see both the sort of classical style and the Egyptian style of the building. It wasn't like half the building was exactly Egyptian or one facade was exactly Egyptian, one was exactly classical. That probably would have looked just aesthetically a bit stranger anyways, but whether it was looking through the two doorways, one rounded and one straight, whether it was looking at the windows with contrasting styles, there seems to be a very deliberate attempt to advertise the fact that, hey, we're doing something unique here and we know or we are very familiar with more than one style. We are very cosmopolitan either, you know, in our, whether that was a reflection of their political endeavors or whether that was more of like an artistic grandstanding of look at the superior way in which we're able to decorate this building because of our contacts that are so, so foreign or so far afield. The question of whether, you know, one is supposed to be more focused on than the other, it is interesting to see that the Egyptian decoration is definitely done with a lot more fine detail on a very sort of mechanical, technical level. It seems that the decoration or those who were carving the decoration seemed a lot more familiar or comfortable with the Egyptian parts of the temple, whereas the, or the Egyptian decorations on the temple, whereas the capital toppings and, and the Roman windows just don't have the same level of detail, nor is it as fine. And so there's also a level of seeming probably like ease at least or, or comfort and also that highlights the fact that those who were commissioning this are not the ones that are also carving it so you have to have you know stonemasons and artists and artisans that are the ones that, that are actually building these structures and decorating them and there seems to be likely more contact or more experience with a, a sort of Egyptian repertoire of decoration than the classical one. This is so great because often with monumental works or with like architectural remains, we know who the patrons are, but then the question remains of who's the one building it. And then what does that tell us about the history of this site, about these remains? So the fact that you can tell from just like the level of refinement and familiarity between like the Egyptian decorations and the Greco-Roman ones is so cool. I, I love this. Mm-hmm. So clearly in your research, you've been able to show that this sort of bland imitation, this assimilation to a certain degree of Greco-Roman culture, that's not what's happening here. There's some agency, there's some creativity happening. It's a really cool artifact. It's a cool relic that we have. I'm wondering, what is your favorite part of this kiosk at Nikah? 
Oh, that is such a good question that doesn't get asked in an academic context most of the time. <laughs> I think my favorite detail from the kiosk is the way that you can, well, my favorite part of it would definitely be the Egyptian doorway, which just has this fine, fine, incredible detail of, of these carved wings, probably the wings of Horus, which are just beautiful. And you have these sort of embedded doorways, which are really common and speak to the Egyptian afterlife of sort of you pass through multiple doorways. But the way that you, when you stand in one doorway or the other, you can see the other one framed. And so if you stand at, not that I've been to Sudan, however, if you see the photos and if you stand at the Egyptian side and you can look through the Egyptian doorway, you see the rounded Roman doorway framed at the other end of it. And if you look through the rounded Roman doorway, you see the rectangular Egyptian doorway framed in the other end. And it creates a striking visual that's a bit off-putting because it's not parallel. It's not the same. And it definitely draws you in to the complexity of the structure, even if you, even if you were someone who would never be able to sort of identify, let's say, the minute details of the composite capitals, you could tell that there's something interesting and a sort of hybrid going on in the structure. Neat. No, that's really cool and definitely adds to this kind of ekphrasis element that we've got going on here. And I think some of these main points that you bring out about the mixing of architectural elements in the kiosk is bolstered by the accompanying structure, which is the lion temple. So this is right next to the kiosk, and it's almost distinctly different in its architectural makeup. Can you talk us through that? What is the style that we see in the lion temple? And maybe I should backtrack a bit and ask what is the lion temple? So temple, I'm guessing more obviously religious than a kiosk, but is there a certain deity that's a local deity that it's associated with. So maybe let's start off there. Yeah. So the Lion Temple is another structure in this sort of religious area of Nika. It's located right next or in very close proximity to the kiosk. And it's a much more what we could call classical example of Meroitic architecture. It's one large single room and the facade has like one distinct front to it, which is characterized by two towers and sort of a large pylon. And again, if people Google photos of it, you'll be able to see the difference really obviously where there's this sort of single blank large facade on one end of the temple that stands out. It's larger than the other three sides. This design of temple we see in other Nubian sites and other Meroitic sites and has much more obvious architectural features and archaeological features that have been excavated that point to religious functions. So carvings of deities that we know were worshipped, altars, see, seemingly lots of jars used for things like libations and offerings and things like that. The Lion Temple in Nika is very interesting and quite gorgeous as its front is carved into the stone. There is drawings of King Natakamani and Queen Amanitore, who are the two rulers of Meroe, and they are carved into the facade of the front of the temple. And then other reliefs of royalty and various divinities are all carved around the side walls of the pylon on the long northern and sort of southern outside walls. So you have this whole sort of processual carving on the exterior of the temple with these religious and royal figures. So very obviously, this is not like the kiosk. And very interestingly, all these carvings, as well as the architecture, follow a Nubian model of relief carving. And I say Nubian also to distinguish it not just from classical carvings, let's say, but also from Egyptian ones. It's not the sort of timeless look of the pharaohs that we get where they have a very similar 
profile pose and sort of structure and almost genderless look to Egyptian rulers. You have a very distinct male, female, king, queen carving. And the queen is like just much larger and much more sort of full bodied than you see in, for example, Egyptian reliefs and relief carvings. So you have this very, yeah, Meroitic or Nubian religious structure and temple that's right there next to the Roman kiosk, which creates, again, a really diverse landscape of architecture and art going on. I imagine there must have been a little bit of whiplash when you look back and forth between these two religious buildings. Like one is so obviously local and mm-hmm. and then the other is like this almost weird complex mix of different architectural styles. It must have been really cool to look at. Again, I guess this is just the plug to go search this up on the internet <laughs> and, and have a look. At <laughs> yeah, it's really contrastive. So this has been a pretty thorough and deep analysis into these two buildings. Do you see yourself moving forward, continuing in this context, or are you going to shift elsewhere, potentially other places in North Africa or even outside of the African continent? That's a great question. You know, both and I would love to do everything, but you can't. So right now I'm working on a thesis that's actually about Egyptian style objects that are found in Roman and sort of in Italian context. So I think this paper really focused my interests and sort of got me thinking about the way that in the ancient world, particular visual languages or visual registers were sort of understood by other people. And so in the same way that maybe the classical style was adopted by people in Nubia, um, I'm sort of flipping that around and looking at um, how the Egyptian style for particular objects was adopted and sort of manufactured in mainland Italy in places that weren't Egypt. And the way that um, art and and visual language um, communicates a lot more than just wealth, luxury, and beauty. Obviously, it communicates that, but there's a lot of, you know, political um, and sort of political implications and social capital that are attached to understanding and using and sort of appropriating and adopting foreign visual um, traditions. And I would love to look more at um, the economy and trade connections in the region and sort of down to ancient Ethiopia, um, because I think a lot of that is understudied and underconnected with the classical world. That's definitely important work, just the reintegration to a certain degree of North Africa back into like the traditional classical mindset. And then even just to go beyond that into Nubia. So I, I think this will be really interesting. And you also bring up the reciprocal relationship too when you see Egyptian influences coming into Italy and not just Rome and Greece exporting all of their artistic development. Yeah, because that is so often the narrative is we see classical things elsewhere, and that is a definitive, that is definitive proof of this one-way expansion of culture, of, of Hellenization or Romanization. Um, and uh, I, I think um, so much of that material um, has the ability to to sort of speak back a bit more and and um you know if trade is going one way it's probably going the other way if people are moving one way people are probably also moving the other way uh and um it's fantastic to to i think have so many young scholars that are so much more interested um in just expanding the definitions of and the sort of the borders of what classics means. We need more of that for sure.
you know, you can already see the years of work that are going to be put into this, but it's, it's really exciting. I think this is going to be great. Our closing question now is a pretty big one. It's the very simple question of what is classics to you? I think classics to me is the ability to study the ancient world beyond the confines of, of literature, beyond the confines of, of, of Latin and Greek. And I think classics has become a means to sort of center the ancient world and all of its sort of complex interconnections um, that begin in Roman Greece in so many ways, but sort of extend beyond that. I think, yeah, continuing to redefine how people see classics um, is, is really important to sort of normalizing its complexity um, and, and uh, its uniqueness. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me and for sharing with me all of these cool facts about Egypt and about Nubia that I otherwise wouldn't have access to. Thank you. You've been listening to my interview with Avery Workington about archaeology in the kingdom of Nubia. Tune in next time for my conversation with Marina Martin, who is currently completing her MPhil degree at Cambridge University, studying architecture and urban design. The questions for this episode were created with the help of Sean Bede. Audio editing was also completed by Emma Gautier. The podcast is created with funds from the Arts Undergraduate Society and the Financial Management Committee at McGill University. And if you've noticed an improvement in the quality of our audio, that's because we've also partnered with McGill's campus radio, CKUT. So shout out to them. Cover art for the podcast is made by Taya Kendall. Music by Matthew Hawkins. I'm Cindy Zhang, and thank you for listening to Tell Me Muse.